the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show, where Georgine Rice is the host. That sounds a little awkward, but I'm back from the brink and I'm just delighted to be reunited with my producer, James Blend, and my engineer, Clark Hilton, to produce the Georgine Rice Show so that the name at the masthead kind of matches the voice that you hear. Before I say anything, I just want to take a moment and thank the guest hosts that made the program possible in my absence. And I'll talk about that in just a few moments. I want to thank my coworker, Mike Lee, who is the sweetest man in America. Uh, during my absence, he and his wife brought food to our house. They sent flowers, just a very thoughtful man of faith uh, who prayed for me and uh, filled in for me during this season. I want to thank Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield and her husband, Dr. Ken Canfield, who sat in as uh, co-hosts of the program, which, by the way, is no small thing. She has her own show. They've got their own life. To fill in for someone else as a guest host takes a lot more effort than you might imagine, and they were willing to do that. Uh, to support and minister to me in my absence and to minister to you. I want to thank Sandy Snavely, who is such a capable communicator and author, who also filled in for me, conducted a number of great interviews and uh, disrupted her life for the sake of uh, hosting the program. And I also want to especially extend uh, my thanks to Frank Sontag, my um co-worker, if you will, from Los Angeles, the uh, host of the Frank Sontag Show. It's it's a difficult thing to fill in for someone else who has an audience that's familiar with their style and content. You cross state lines and you come and fill in and try to cover some of the same sorts of issues um, that the original host might. Well, Frank Sontag uh, did yeoman's duty in filling in for me, and I'm so grateful. He uh, carried most of the load and was happy to do so. Uh, was praying for me and uh, from what I understand was very supportive of uh, the work that I do here. So I want to especially uh, say thank you to Frank Sontag and I'll be uh, contacting each one of them individual to, to say thank you as well. Uh, the program continued without a hitch, although for James Blend, that meant a considerable <laughs> amount of scrambling and work. So I want to thank James Blend for his efforts in keeping the program going and supporting me. We communicated from time to time. He kept you up to date as much as was possible, um, arranged for guest hosts and guests and all of that. So I'm very grateful for his capable efforts in um, keeping that uh, steady uh, rather steadying the ship during that season and also Clark Hilton and Justin Mansfield for their efforts as well. So again, want to say thank you to all of them. Well, it was at February 23rd. I had finished recording the program. I had plans for a radiothon the following day. I had plans for that evening and for the weeks to follow. I was going to be hosting a couple of events as MC, um, one for paid in full and another that was uh, coming up during this season. So my plans were laid out. Things were certain about what the future would look like, at least for the next couple of weeks. The next day, I would go into the station and record a radiothon, but it wasn't to be. I had plans and expectations. 
That night, I was taken unresponsive to neurological ICU by my husband, who wasn't able to wake me uh, as I was stretched out on the couch. And that's a rather long story. I'm not going to go into all of those details. But I spent four days in neurological ICU, followed by several days uh, in the hospital, completely unaware of the dramatic and life-threatening events that took place in uh, the days preceding and the days that followed. There was a journey that I wasn't certain I was going to survive. Now, I have to tell you, it wasn't frightening to me because my life journey has already been um, laid out by my father. My days have been numbered. He knows precisely um, what my future looks like. My future, uh, he says, is uh, one of uh, hope and a good thing. So I wasn't frightened, but I did begin to talk with Dan Rice uh, once I came out of ICU about the course we were going to take if I didn't survive at all. Well, suffering is a part of the life that we live in, in a fallen world, and it comes uh, for many reasons, but uh, God allows it for purpose. They're hard questions, um, but in the midst of all of that, we need to trust God, and that was my challenge. No suffering takes place outside of God's sovereign rule. So my question wasn't, why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? But my response is, Lord, what do you want to teach me? How do you want me to respond? And what is it that you want me to glean from these set of very difficult circumstances? And he manages to somehow orchestrate all things for our good and his glory. And I clung to that even during the most difficult days. Hard times create for us and created for me deeper dependence on and intimacy with God. But that was a choice I had to make, and I'm not suggesting that I am so uh, elevated in my faith that that was a, my first response and it was an, uh, diff- an easy decision to make, but this is what the Holy Spirit moved me toward uh, during this season. The suffering God allows never diminishes His love for us, and that has been my experience throughout. Now, suffering is never just something to be endured. It's an opportunity to see God more passionately, to know him more deeply. And faith grows us as we lean into God. We trust him for needed strength when times are hard and sometimes feel impossible. Suffering can increase our spiritual strength when times are hard. It can increase our spiritual sensitivity. It can tenderize our hearts toward him. And it removes the pretense, and this certainly was my experience, that we have things figure out, uh, figured out rather, or that we can control what we cannot. It strips away our dependence on people or things that cannot satisfy our deepest longings, and we press in to God. Um, this was perhaps the most difficult and challenging event of my life where my health and life were at stake. I have to say that Dan Rice, I have come to love him in a, a, a deeper way. He spent every moment that he was allowed in the hospital with me, which meant long days, late nights, just sitting at my bedside, oftentimes with my being completely unaware, and to have that support, to know that he was there praying for me and living out the vows that he made to me nearly 39 years ago was such a blessing. I was sent a card by one of my co-workers that was such an encouragement to me during this time. Uh, and it simply said there is... Um, There are ever-changing circumstances in life. There is a faithful, never-changing God who is always in control, and we can rest in his faithfulness. Every day begins and ends with his purpose. There isn't a detail that escapes his eye, a trial that doesn't touch his heart, or a single experience beyond his compassion. 
Every moment of our lives is in his care and he gives overwhelming peace and hope. And that, ladies and gentlemen, has been my experience over the last several weeks. My diagnosis is serious, but I am expected, according to the doctors who have been treating me, to make a full recovery. And that is what I'm asking and praying for. If God chooses otherwise, if he decides that this is the event that ultimately shortens or ends my life from my perspective, I want to be faithful to accomplish everything he intends between now and then. I'm clinging to and asking for full recovery. And as I said, that is expected. But I also trust in God's sovereignty and his goodness. And along with my prayer for healing, I'm also releasing my life and surrendering to him for whatever the future holds. Now, I want you to know I'm planning to be here until I retire some years from now. (laughs) That's my plan and that's my purpose. I'm so grateful to be right back behind the mic, working with my coworkers and uh, sharing this mic and this this, uh, experience with you. But before I move on to other more relevant events to most of us, I just wanted to be reminded of some of the things that I know to be true about God that gives me hope even in times where despair is crying out to be embraced. God is seated on heaven's throne in glory, majesty, and supreme authority. He is in charge. He doesn't make mistakes. He has promised that you and I will be with him. He will be with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He uses hard times to get us to look up so that we look up now and we can turn to him always. We thank you, Lord, for your promise that when we come to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you will hear our prayers because we are your children. We reverence your name, Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus. He has declared that at the sound of his name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has revealed that... Um, Our name is far, his name rather, is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Every title uh, that can uh, be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Uh, You have been given, you have been rather our help in ages past. You are our hope for years to come. You are our God of uh, the founding fathers. You are the God in whom we as a nation have put our trust. We as individuals can lay our lives. And I am trusting in him for the future. I am grateful and thankful uh, for the progress that's been made with my health that brings me back to these mics. And um, I expect will um, give me the opportunity to continue until he calls me home someday in the long distant future. Well, all of that said, today's program, we want to follow the same pattern that we followed before that disruption on February the 24th. And we'll be uh, taking a look at some of the day's headlines. So I hope you'll stick around for that. Uh, We'll also take a look at Eric Chauvin verdict and what that means. We'll talk with Mo Aiken, author of Fully Known, an invitation to true intimacy with God and much, much more. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back behind the mic after a rather lengthy absence. And by the way, there's no crying in radio, so you'll have to overlook that. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, as uh, we all know by now, police officer, former police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts. The 45-year-old, he was charged with second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. 
With Americans on edge as they awaited the verdict, the jury announced that it has found him guilty across the board. Andrew McCarthy explained why the verdict uh, came back so quickly, but he then noted that there is a serious question about whether Derek Chauvin got a fair trial. He went on to explain what he meant by that. Um, that is a separate question from whether the evidence was compelling. And to be sure, the stronger the evidence, the harder it is to show that due process was denied. A reviewing court is um, uh, harder uh, if it's uh, it's harder rather to show that due process was denied. Um, that even exemplary due process wouldn't have made a difference. That said, as soon as the jury deliberations got underway, Cahill himself conceded that the prejudicial publicity against Chauvin, exacerbated by Congresswoman Maxine Waters' inflammatory rhetoric uh, over the weekend, created a significant appellate issue. Now, whether or not that arises as such remains to be seen. Meanwhile, former President Barack Obama said today a jury in Minneapolis did the right thing. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we know that true justice is about much more than a single verdict. From the Wall Street Journal, it would be nice to think all of this uh, would prompt reflection among those who have exploited Floyd's killing for political purposes, but it probably won't. Even after the verdict, commentators who applauded the jury gave last year's riots in American cities the credit for inspiring it. Not the facts, not the law, but lawless protests. If a large faction of Americans really believe that only mayhem in the streets can guarantee justice in America, then this verdict will mean little And we are in for more unrest across the country. Well, a lawyer defending Derek Chauvin, who's on trial for uh, the uh, death of George Floyd, cited Representative Maxine Waters' uh, comments in Minnesota to protesters over the weekend in court back on Monday before the verdict was announced. And now that we have a U.S. representative threatening acts of violence and uh, retaliation of this specific case, it's mind-boggling. Attorney Eric Nelson said as he attempted to argue that the jury may have been unduly influenced by external factors. Judge Peter Cahill said that he wished elected officials would stop referencing the case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law, so as to let the judicial process play out as intended. He added, however that he did not believe the comments unduly influenced the jury as they had been told not to watch the news. Representative Waters urged protesters in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, where Duante Wright was recently shot by a police officer, to stay in the street, as she pointed uh, and joined, uh, pointed out and joined the protesters on Saturday and violated the local curfew. We've got to stay in the street, she said. We've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. The representative uh, referenced a scenario where Chauvin is not convicted. We've got to make sure they know that we mean business. Well, some House Democrats have a problem with Maxine Waters after the judge called her out, but not all, as they gave her a pass. Uh, Senator McCarthy says Maxine Waters finds value in violence. Democrats need to censor uh, their own and Tlaib's comments to the uh, uh, issue as well. Tommy uh, Lahren says Maxine Waters wants a race war and should be expelled from Congress for dangerous incitement. Well, of course, that did not happen. Still, some on the left are unhappy with the Chauvin conviction because nothing ever satisfies dis- uh, progressives. Despite the three uh, uh, for three conviction, many complained. NBC's Jason Johnson said, I'm not happy. I'm not pleased. I don't have any sense of satisfaction. I don't think this is the system working. I don't think this is a good thing. Uh, what the alternative might be, one asks while scratching one's head. AOC says, I don't want this moment to be framed as the system working. 
So how else might one frame it? There was a trial. Charges were brought. The individual was found guilty and will serve time in prison. Mark Davis says, this is what I mean this morning when I said that even a satisfactory verdict will not quell the hatred of America. Sad but true. Meanwhile, President Biden ignored $1 billion in riot damage while praising George Floyd protesters after the Chauvin conviction. President Biden um, neglected to acknowledge the rioting, the looting, the arson, and worse, that reportedly caused more than $1 billion in property damage last year as he praised George Floyd protesters following Derek Chauvin's conviction on murder charges. The president said the protesters demonstrated in peace and with purpose I'm not sure where he was watching and listening. A description that applied to the majority of the marches in support of just uh, justice for Floyd. But Biden made no mention of the uh, of the uh, rioting that also occurred, although authorities from around the country for months warned that bad actors were exploiting legitimate protests to loot and damage property, commit arson and in some cases murder. Well, despite estimates that only a tiny percentage of the protesters led to riots, insurance companies reported more than a billion dollars in property damage. A factor in overtime for first responders and the total cost surpassed the infamous Rodney King riots in Los Angeles in 1992 as the most expensive in American history. More than 140 cities saw repeated uh, protests in the three weeks immediately following Floyd's May 25th, 2020 death. Well, Speaker Pelosi is facing intense backlash after thanking George Floyd for sacrificing his life for justice. Well, Mr. Floyd was, in fact, murdered. He didn't sacrifice his life. Uh, It's important to know what happens next. Derek Chauvin's verdict was guilty on all three counts. Uh, It set uh, set off some jubilation around Minneapolis. And now that the former Minneapolis police officer has been convicted of murder and manslaughter in the death of Mr. Floyd, many are now turning their attention to the three other officers who were charged with aiding and abetting in Floyd's death. Floyd's death. Well, Chauvin and the other three former officers, uh, Tao Theo, Alexander uh, Kunig, and Thomas Lane, were fired the day after Floyd's death on the 25th, rather, of May in 2020. Floyd died after being arrested on suspicion of passing counterfeit $20 bills for a pack of cigarettes. The three responded to a call about a forgery in process, but did not directly cut off Floyd's breathing. The three officers were later charged with aiding and abetting unintentional second-degree murder and aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter, charges that carry up to 40 years in prison. They're going to stand trial in court together beginning on the 23rd in Hennepin County. Uh, The men remain free on $750,000 bail. The centerpiece of the case in Chauvin's trial was a bystander video of Floyd gasping and repeatedly saying, I can't breathe, and onlookers yelling at Chauvin to stop as the officer pressed his knee uh, and closed um, knee on or close to Floyd's neck for what authorities say was nine and a half minutes. Floyd solely uh, went silent and limp, and in the moments that followed, there were numerous states and cities restricted the use of force by police, revamped disciplinary systems, subjected uh, police departments to closer oversight, and so on. Well, the guilty verdict yesterday set off a jubilation in Minneapolis. People instantly flooded the surrounding streets downtown, running through traffic with banners and cars blaring their horns. Floyd's family members gathered at a Minneapolis conference room. They could be heard cheering and even laughing. At the intersection where Floyd was pinned down, a crowd chanted, one down, three to go, referring to the three officers to be tried 
on the 23rd. Well, defense attorneys of all four former Minneapolis police officers have filed motions to move the trial out of Hennepin County, arguing that Jujuri Poole's uh, perspective has been tainted by the media, by comments made by elected officials in the high-profile case. Whether or not that will, in fact, happen uh, does not seem likely at this uh, at this time. Meanwhile, in other news, networks are uh, teeing up George W. Bush to hit the GOP, but not Biden, on immigration. And Simon & Schuster say Mike Pence's new book will proceed despite employee petitions protesting its publication. And President Biden is preparing to unveil a $1 trillion families plan spending proposal this month. Well, Netflix pl- uh, stock rather is plummeting 10% as new subscribers fail to meet expectations. Well, nowhere in the stories is it noted that Netflix saw a huge negative public reaction to their promotion of the sexualized preteen movie Cuties. And a teacher who was ousted for fighting anti-racist orthodoxy has become a whistleblower as he recorded a New York um, private school's um, uh, meeting heard admitting the school demonizes white people for being born. And this is increasingly the case. As an African-American, this is, from my perspective, and as a Christian, unacceptable. Well, next door is warning people before they post something uh, demeaning race, uh, such things as mentioning Blue Lives Matter. It appears to mainly warn conservatives flagging such phrases. And the RNC has pulled in a record amount in the first quarter. The Biden presidency has helped the Republican National Committee raise funds. Not altogether surprising when one party out of power now has the other party to bludgeon thinking about the next four years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got uh, news and traffic coming at the top of, actually, no, we don't. We See, I'm a little rusty these days. We have an interview with Mo Aiken. The uh, book we're going to be talking about is Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. Stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm glad you're with us because we're going to talk about a subject that can be a little bit touchy for some of us, either because we don't necessarily understand the concept or we don't quite know how to get to where we want to be. My next guest, who is the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God, she writes that we're made for intimacy, spiritual intimacy with God that brings oneness and bears powerful fruit. We were made to know him and to be known by him fully. So the question is, why do we so often feel burned out, distanced, and disheartened? Well, my next guest is Mo Aiken. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's back with a new book, Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. She invites readers on a journey into an active communion with him. The book's written for people who feel disconnected from God, who feel burned out from religion, or desire to understand what it means to actually have a relationship with God. They hunger for more in the faith. Well, the blueprint of the book is uh, the blueprint our creator has given us, dynamic intimacy with God. What stands in opposition to that model can prevent us from fully experiencing what he has in store for us. Well, my next guest is the New York Times bestselling author of Wreck My Life and Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations, The Church for God. 
Mo Aiken, who is Mo Isom. She collaborates for the kingdom with Bold Life Initiative, a ministry that exists to challenge, encourage, and equip Christian followers to pursue holy and bold lives. And her family team maintains a thriving nationwide speaking ministry and facilitates a faith-centered blog that has garnered millions of views to date. She and her husband, Jeremiah, they live with their three sons, soon to be four, by the way, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mo, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate it. Yeah, we're a week away from number four, so it's uh, (laughs) all hands on deck over here. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Again, congratulations. You know, we use the word intimacy a lot, and in certain contexts, we think we have a pretty good idea of what that means. But can we define the term intimacy in the context of our relationship with God? I mean, He knows everything about us. Is that what the Scripture refers to uh, as intimacy, that He knows us, while we may or may not know Him very well? What are we we looking at in terms of the goal of our relationship with Christ? Yes, the beauty of true intimacy, even as we think about it in the context of uh, a marriage relationship, right? It is a mutual knowing and being known. It is vulnerability. It's transparency. It's a oneness that comes from, um, man, really being drawn together and pulling back the layers of one another, learning of one another and exploring one another at greater depth. So, There was a season, a time where I was doing a lot of great things for the kingdom, ministering, traveling, Um, man, a wife, a mom. It it felt like doing a lot for God, but it was like my spirit came up for air and felt so far from God, felt so disconnected and hungry for his presence and um, burnt out, to be honest, because we can... Uh, do a lot, but if we're not connected to that true power source, our our first love, um, then that fruit we bear is really by our own efforts. When he says, no, draw near to me, I will draw near to you, and uh, I want to know you and for you to know me, and the fruit that comes from that, and that's that spirit-conceived fruit that builds the kingdom and um, that we're sustained by. So Mm -hmm. the truth of intimacy is it's dynamic. It is um, mutual. It's a choice to continue to engage. And it so beautifully transforms everything when we understand it rightly. You know, this notion of intimacy, uh, I think, repels us from pursuing God. And it also makes us long for that. On the one hand, we long to be known. On the other hand, we fear being known. Is that part of what prevents us from pressing in that um, we'll be exposed that the worst parts of us will somehow um, uh, create an impediment in our relationship with God, which is just contrary to what Scripture encourages us to do. But is that part of what prevents us from pressing into God as he um, moves toward us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many encounters um, that we've had in our own lives or experiences. Think of, you know, authority figures that have been over us or maybe, Uh, relationships with our parents or intimate relationships we've had with other people that have left us hurt or confused or wounded or our perception of um, trusting is violated or, you know, any number of unhealthy relationships with Mm -hmm. man 
uh, with one another, these things deeply impress on us our understanding of intimacy. So man, then here in the scriptures, well, the invitation is to be intimate with God. And we're like, I don't want anything to do with that because that left me hurt or I laid myself there for someone, you know, my heart and they left me, they rejected me. Um, It leads us to believe that God will love us the same as other relationships have been. Um, But the truth is that his, his love is actually perfect and it's abiding and it stays and it's long suffering and it's gracious and it's kind and he doesn't force himself upon us. He um, reveals himself and he gives us a choice uh, to choose to engage with him. And a big part of writing this book and even navigating uh, healing for myself as I, as I began to explore true intimacy with God was processing through, hey, why am I terrified to be vulnerable? Why mm-hmm. does every time, you know, sin is revealed in me, do I just shut down? or want to run from uh, that engagement when really the word says that conviction from the Holy Spirit is, is a work of the spirit. It's a good thing. It's meant to do a beautiful heart surgery on us, you know, to draw what's in the darkness out into light and to set us free because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But a lot of the times because we're confused to, to the dynamic layers of intimacy, we just want what feels good or makes us feel good and happy. And if it doesn't, we don't really want much to do with it. We miss out on this sanctifying, transformative love that is uh, layered and dynamic, but is sure and um, and is good on its word and promises us of uh, its staying power. We're talking with Mo Aiken. She's the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. In the introduction you write, let me start by sharing a truth your heart is likely longing to be reminded. You were made to know intimacy with God. You were created to commune with your Creator. Tuned to know that sound, the sound of the Good Shepherd's voice, designed to experience his dignifying touch, and sculpted by him to house his perfect and powerful spirit. You, you are who he loves, and God has made a way for you to know him and be known by him both now and forevermore. That's such a beautiful reminder of what we are intended to be. But you also write that intimacy comes with great cost. What is the cost that we might expect as we follow God's invitation to press into him. Yeah, it's, it's the reality of, um, again, as we liken it to a marriage covenant, it's the reality of a mutual commitment. Um, what, what marriage doesn't really look like, um, though we see this a lot around us, is basically I, I choose you and I hope you keep me happy. And if I'm not happy, then uh, I change my mind. But the the truth of healthy covenant is a mutual exchange. You give all for me, I give all for you. And we know that Christ gave everything for us. Mm -hmm. He laid down his life to save us, to redeem us. And so this um, mutual engagement is that we're not abusive of grace or picking and choosing when we want to claim God and living our lives, you know, a different way the other days of the week, but it's a mutual laying down of our life. What would you have of me, Lord? Where would you have me go? How, what would you point out in me that, you know, I I should turn from? 
how would you use me to build your kingdom? And that uh, picture of, of mutual exchange looks a lot like the work of the cross, which was self-sacrifice. And it's what it looks like a lot in our lives as well. There is cost of um, our wants sometimes, our will, to align ourselves with his heart, his way, and his works. And um, while it seems like, man, I don't want to think about the cost. That just seems like a lot. I think the beautiful invitation is to also focus on the great gain. Because mm-hmm. when we will begin to um, live in step in oneness with him in that way, yes, there's cost. But the gain that comes to see the kingdom built, to see captives set free, to see people's lives transformed by his love, to see the work that he wants to do in and through us, makes every moment of it worth it. And so this intimacy not only transforms us from the inside out, but it also is what empowers us by his grace to love our neighbors well. And are those not the greatest two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, the beauty of intimacy with him is that it only heals and helps restore our understanding of right-natured intimacy with one another. And I think we'll see transformation over the body of Christ when we embrace these two things and uh, are, learn to love and to speak and carry truth well, because we've been loved and we've been ministered to by truth in that hidden place with God. Yes, yes. Once again, the book is Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. I'm having a conversation with Mo Aiken. We'll continue that conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm continuing my conversation with Mo Aiken. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is Fully Known. An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. It's a, it's a concept that many of us long for and in fully known how we get there and the benefits of the intimacy that God invites us to uh, with himself is explained in a way that I think will inspire all of us to want to rush toward him as, um, as he uh, calls us. Now, I know many of us are very busy doing kingdom work. You mentioned that one of the uh, inspirations for the book was the fact that you were busy doing a lot of things, but there was something lacking. What do you say to those who feel, well, they're burned out, either with service mm-hmm. to the church, with Christianity in general, um, but there's that that lack of intimacy that fuels joyful ministry moving forward. Um, and, you know, we just, we're ready to just give up. Right. Well, I would first say it's the very place I found myself, like you mm-hmm. mentioned. And so I don't think it's unfamiliar ground for those who um, are navigating the faith. I I actually think it's an area we don't speak into enough. And so a lot of people become confused, disheartened, kind of shamed around. Well, I, I, I do believe in Jesus, but this uh, is exhausting or this, this can't be the fullness of what this blood-bought grace is able uh, to do in my life. And we wrestle sort of this shame in that spot. But I think sometimes it takes us stepping back and, and bending a knee and slowing down to realize, oh, my works are preceding my time with mm. him, my intimacy mm-hmm. with him. How many people in the ministry burn out because there are so many things to do, but they don't know how to just be 
with God, or it is not priority to simply be with him in his presence because our task list runs so deep. We don't have the time. Uh, But the reality is that he has great works in store for our lives, but they are the works that are born out of that intimate, quiet, prioritized space. And those works, those works conceived by the Spirit, those are sustainable because we begin building the kingdom of God as he instructs, you know, by his hand versus working so hard to uh, do what we think is best and really burning out in the process. And it's countercultural, right? It's even offensive to many to say, hey, uh, maybe we Sabbath, (laughs) maybe we settle down, maybe we rest at his feet, maybe you step away for a while. But if we look even at the story of Mary and Martha, whom I love both, and Jesus loved both of those women, we give Martha a hard rap a lot of the time, but she was laboring from good intention, from a pure heart place that wanted to serve the Lord. But what Jesus says in that exchange when Mary asks him to rebuke, or when Martha asks him to rebuke Mary for simply sitting at his feet, he says, Martha, you are concerned about so many things. But, but if you're going to be concerned about anything, let it be this. Mary has found it, and it cannot be taken from her. And I just see in the scriptures this illumination of actual permission from Jesus to concern ourselves with something. But that concern is not, how am I going to fit in Jesus? You know, how am I going to fit in my time with God amongst all my other demands? The concern kind of flips of, how am I going to fit in the needs of life outside of this prioritization of being at his feet? Mm. And he says that what Mary has found there, it can't be taken from her. And I don't know about you, but I, I want the treasures of heaven that can't be taken, no matter what the demands of life are, this world looks like, or you know the circumstances around me. That prioritization, that posture of being with him is... Um, ours and it and it can't be stolen it, it can't be taken and um i think it is it's a truth that many of us need to wrestle with and receive that it's okay to slow down it's okay to stop man this book took me two and a half years because he convicted me in the process of writing it and i had to stop for a while mm. <laughs> be with him so I could actually bring forth the words that he intended, not just that my own best efforts could work up. But that's a hard sell for people, (laughs) for our culture where we're goers and doers and everything can be done so fast and our schedules can be so full. Uh, But it's a holy sell to those who really want to know life and life abundantly with him. Yeah, a life of surrender where he's the priority. Now, some of us do, well, the minimum, if you will, just enough uh, to pursue uh, the relationship with God, but don't want to go any further um, or have to. What do we miss when we settle for the least of what's available to us in our relationship with Christ, as opposed to doing what you just described, making the choice Mm -hmm. to believe what the scriptures say, that intimacy with him far outweighs in value and virtually anything else um, than uh, just pursuing what we are familiar with, what we can do on our own. And, you know, with the guarantee, well, I'm going to get to heaven. It's just, I may not know the the king of heaven as well as some others who are Mm -hmm. there. 
Well, that's what we have to wrestle with. That was the very scripture that challenged me and brought things deeper in my heart. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my father. And many will say to me, well, you know, did we not prophesy? We cast demons, we perform miracles. But to them, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I began to wrestle with this scripture because for a while I dismissed it as, oh, it's just non-believers, you know, that it's speaking to. But he's saying, no, there are many who will call me Lord. But they even go on to argue their, their great works, right? But his response is, yeah, but I never knew you. And so mm-hmm. the prioritization really of the gospel there, the assuredness, the day we stand before him that we wouldn't tremble in fear, but that we would have been made perfect in his love, as the word says, is that the priority is to know him. This word this uh, in Hebrew means yada. It is um, the same version of the word used when it said like, and Joseph had not yet known Mary or the man took his wife and he knew her. It implies a deep connected oneness. And so when I began to understand that a scary piece of scripture actually became a beautiful invitation, but it was sobering in the reality that um, just claiming his name and then abusing his grace, it, it doesn't make evident that the gospel is uh, transformed our lives. You know, many doing just the bare minimum, we've sort of bought into, I think, a, a cultural cell maybe of uh, the gospel. But I want to be sure, I want to know in my heart, in my spirit, that that he was my, my life source, that my life was one with him, that my days weren't wasted or I wasn't deceived, uh, but that I took accountability for my own walk and didn't just uh, perform, but I'll stand before him and hear well done because I knew his voice and I followed him and I received his love and I poured out my life in response. And um, it's so much deeper. I, I think a lot of the times, especially when we are walking in maybe a place of that more shallow faith or um, maybe that cultural buy-in and we say Lord, but uh, it's sort of a, a compartmentalized piece of our days. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that comes from a heart posture of maybe not even realizing the full and powerful and abundant access that we have to the spirit of the living God. Uh, as if we have to go through someone else, as if we could only learn from, you know, uh, whosoever looks like they're such a strong Christian. No, we have the very bread of life, the word of God, right at our fingertips. I mean, you could have it as an app on your phone. We have the spirit of the living God eager to commune individually and uniquely and specifically with each one of us. And so if there's someone listening who maybe finds themselves in that place, I would just compel them into depths, into the deeper waters. There is more. Just as the excerpt you read from the book, we were made to know our maker, created to commune with him. And this isn't reserved for an elite few. This is the invitation to all by way of the gospel. He wants to speak to you. He wants 
to know you. He wants to guide you and uh, answer your cries, your questions. And you have that very same access that I have, uh, that, that your pastor has, that whosoever around you has. Um, it's just the, the willingness to receive that and to um, draw near to that invitation versus running from it or dismissing it as unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is beautifully written. It certainly has challenged me, and I'm going to go back and uh, study through many portions of it. The book is fully known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. Mo Aiken, thank you for taking those couple of years to write the book and to listen to and be guided by the Spirit. And uh, I'll certainly keep you in prayer as you're just days away from son number number four. Uh, Really appreciate (laughs) your time today. Thank you so much. Be blessed. You too. Again, Mo Aiken, fully known, an invitation to true intimacy with God. A great book. And during this season where we have perhaps a little more time, it's a great opportunity to take stock of where we stand in our relationship with God and if we're taking full advantage of all that he has made available through to us. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. And I have to admit, I'm a bit rusty, having been absent uh, since, what, February 23rd. But I'm trying to... Uh, Work out those muscles, and hopefully in the next couple of days we'll be up to muster. Anyway, we're working our way through some of the day's headlines, and among them, the Democrats uh, nuked the censure of Maxine Waters for incitement of violence in Minnesota for making statements for which they attempted to censure President um, Trump as well as a member of the House who hadn't yet been sworn in uh, for Statements and affiliations she had before even becoming a member of Congress and an emboldened Maxine Waters took a victory lap on MSNBC after House GOP failed their effort to censure her over her remarks. Well, Ed Markey and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have reintroduced the Green New Deal boondoggle and a media blackout has resulted in nearly 70 percent of Americans being unaware of John Durham, the probe. Well, a whopping 67 percent of Americans are unaware of special counsel John Durham's investigation into decision making at the FBI and Justice Department surrounding the probe into former President Trump's purported ties to Russia according to a poll that was released yesterday. Well, the Durham probe is entering its third year with little to show for it. Mr. Durham, the former U.S. attorney for Connecticut, has yet to issue a report. He's only made one indictment, scoring a guilty plea uh, from the former FBI lawyer who uh, copped to altering an email to justify continued surveillance of Carter Page, a Trump campaign aide. Well, a former Virginia Tech soccer player sued a coach saying she was forced off the team for not kneeling before a game. In the annals of social justice, the caliphate, Norfolk, Virginia, they fired a police officer who donated to Kylie Rittenhouse. And non-compass mentis award goes to top U.S. Nature Society proposing renaming birds named after slave owners and colonialists. So, Everything is um, up for for grabs and major change. Senate uh, has confirmed Lisa Monaco as deputy attorney general. And the European Union has set a new goal of net zero emissions by 2050. Good luck with that. NASA is uh, flying a helicopter on Mars, the first time an aircraft is flown on another planet. 
And on this day in history, 1926, Britain's Queen Elizabeth II is born in Mayfair, London. 1509, England's King Henry VIII, or rather the seventh, dies. He's succeeded by his 17-year-old son, Henry VIII. 1789, John Adams is sworn in as the first vice president of the United States. 1976, clinical trials for the swine flu vaccine begin in Washington, D.C. 1998, astronomers announced in Washington that they've discovered possible signs of new family of planets orbiting a star 220 light years away. It was the clearest evidence to date of worlds forming beyond our solar system. Ah, the god of wonder beyond our galaxy. Well, there's been a lot going on since my absence in late February, and I'm so grateful that I had a guest host that covered the day's event. So I'm not going to try to go back over all of those things, although much could be said. And uh, during the time that I was away from the mic, um, my illness rendered my vision so poor that I was unable to read and literally um, uh, had to squint so that I could barely see it all and move the page far away and close to try to read what the words on the page were. Well, I have since uh, gotten what I am told and hope will be temporary prescriptions so that I can read up close and see far away. Uh, And that is, we're hoping and praying, will be resolved at some point. But for now, I'm able to read. That wasn't the case for the last several weeks. So I'm just grateful to be able to to read and to, um, of course, listen to the news. But in recovery, the news has far less significance than it does uh, when you're just walking a normal life. But I wanted to talk about the ideological alignment that's pushing our country toward totalitarianism. And there are experts who are writing and warning about this. And there's concern over the nexus of big tech, big media, and big government that what that means for the future of the republic. It's not a current event, but it is a trend that's impacting the course of the nation. And I think when you look at at, uh, biblical prophecy, makes um, much of what we see make sense in terms of how would that be possible? We know what's going to happen, but sometimes we puzzle over how is this going to happen given what we know now and given how things are done now. So I wanted to talk a bit about that. And Peter Svob wrote a piece recently uh, about the very subject, and I wanted to share elements of it with you as well as some of the scholars who are writing on the subject and see if you recognize what they are suggesting is the course change that we're seeing in our constitutional republic if we can keep it. Well, the formation of a totalitarian state is just about complete in America, he argues, as the most powerful public and private sector actors unify behind the idea that actions to stamp out dissent can be justified. That's according to several experts on modern totalitarian ideologies. I'll quote from some of them uh, shortly. Now, while many have warned about the rise of fascism or socialism in the land of the free, and I put that in quotes, if you will, the ideas have largely been vague or fragmented, focusing on individual events or actors. Recent events, however, have changed things. They indicate that seemingly unconnected pieces of the oppression puzzle are fitting together to form a comprehensive system. Now, according to one scholar, Michael uh, Rechtenwald, a retired liberal arts professor at New York University, he points out that many Americans, it appears, have been caught off guard or aren't even aware of the newly forming regime as the idea of elected officials, government bureaucrats, large corporations, the establishment academia, uh, think tanks and nonprofits, the legacy media, and even seemingly grassroots movements all working in concert towards some purpose 
seems preposterous, some evil purpose, is a large portion of the country in on a conspiracy. Now, we tend to think, you know, conspiracy theories are not to be taken seriously. But he goes on to make the point that the reality now emerges that no massive conspiracy was, in fact, needed. Merely an ideological alignment and some informal condition, Rechtenball argues. Now, despite the lack of formal overreaching organization, the American socialist regime is indeed totalitarian, as the root of its ideology requires politically motivated coercion. Uh, he wrote and spoke to the Epic Times and was quoted there. Now, the power of the regime is not yet absolute, but it's becoming increasingly effective as it erodes the values, the checks and the balances against tyranny established by traditional beliefs and enshrined in Americans, America's founding. Now, the effect can be seen throughout society. Americans, regardless of their income, their demographics or social stature, are being fired from their jobs, getting stripped of access to basic services such as banking, social media, uh, or uh, having their businesses crippled for voicing political opinions and belonging to a designated political underclass. Access to sources of information unsanctioned by the regime is becoming increasingly difficult. Now, some figures of power and influence are sketching the next step, labeling large segments of society as extremists and potential terrorists who need to be deprogrammed. Now, if you happen to be religious, if you happen to be conservative, if you happen to support certain political candidates or office holders, you are members of that category, whether or not you embrace every ideology of those groups. Now, when the onset of the regime appears tied to events of recent years, the presidency of Donald Trump, the Chinese Communist Party virus pandemic, the Capitol intrusion on January 9th, its roots go back decades. Is it really totalitarianism that we are facing? And that's a legitimate question, seeing the convergence of these influencers that I mentioned earlier. Well, totalitarian regimes are commonly understood as constituting a government headed by a dictator that regiments the economy, censors the media, and quells dissent by force. Now, that's totalitarianism as we've seen it, we recognize it, we've experienced it from afar. Now, that's not the case in America, but it's also a misunderstanding of how these regimes function. Literature on totalitarian is indicating most recently. To claim power, the regimes don't initially need to control every aspect of society through government. Adolf Hitler, who was the leader, leader rather of the National Socialist Workers' Party in Nazi Germany, he used various means to control the economy that included gaining compliance of industry leaders voluntarily through intimidation or through replacing the executives with party loyalists. Now, I need to take a break, but we're going to continue to ask the question and consider, is it really totalitarianism that we are facing? And what form does it, does it take? Does it always look like what we've seen, like in Nazi Germany uh, prior to the war or something else? Are we seeing elements that gradually move us in that direction? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at uh, the course that the country is taking uh, and um, the ideological alignment that's pushing America toward totalitarianism. That's what some respected scholars and experts are suggesting we are facing here in the United States. Now, is totalitarian the right concept to consider in what's happening now? 
Um, now, one of the things I mentioned before the break is totalitarianism doesn't always begin with a powerful leader. Um, it begins in much more subtle ways. Adolf Hitler, as I mentioned, leader of the National Socialist Workers' Party in Nazi Germany, used various means to um, control the economy, including gaining compliance with media leaders, uh, industry leaders, rather, through intimidation or through replacing executives with party loyalists. Similarly, the regime reared its head in America. It relies on corporate executives to implement its agenda voluntarily, but also through intimidation by online brigades of activists and journalists who take initiative to launch negative PR campaigns and boycotts to progress their preferred societal structure. It's too costly to resist. Also, Adolf Hitler initially didn't control the spread of information via government censorship, but rather through his brigades of street thugs, the brown shirts, if you recall, who would intimidate and physically prevent his opponents from speaking publicly. The tactic uh, paralleled the often successful efforts to cancel and shut down public speakers by activists and violent attacks such as Antifa here. Well, dissenting media in America haven't been silenced by the government directly as of yet, but they are stymied in other ways. In the digital age, media largely rely on reaching and growing their audience through social media and web search engines rather that are dominated by Facebook and Google. Both companies have a place have in place mechanisms to crack down on dissenting media. Google gives preference in its search results to sources it deems authoritative. Search results indicate that the company trends to um, toward uh, media ideologically close to uh, it and be more authoritative with those that do not. Such media can then produce hit pieces on their competitors, giving Google justification to slash the authoritarianness of dissenters. Well, Facebook employs third-party factor check or fact checkers rather, and they have the discretion to label content as false and thus reduce the audience on its platform. Virtually all the fact-checkers focused on American content are ideologically aligned with Facebook. Well, attempts to set up alternative social media have run into yet more fundamental obstacles, as demonstrated by Parler, whose mobile app was um, terminated by Google and Apple while the company was kicked off Amazon's server. No dissenters allowed. Well, to the degree that a totalitarian regime requires a police state, there's no law in America targeting dissenters explicitly, but there are troubling signs of selective, politically motivated enforcement. Signs go back to the IRS's target of Tea Party groups or the defense in uh, treatment received by former Trump advisor Lieutenant General Michael Flynn and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McKay, both allegedly lying to investigators, but only one getting prosecuted. The situation may get still worse as the restrictions tied uh, to the uh, uh, coronavirus see broad swaths of ordinary human behavior being considered illegal, opening the door to nearly universal political targeting. Now, it may seem like it's an overreach to suggest this is part of a movement toward totalitarianism, but I think taken altogether, it is worth serious condition. Mr. Rechtenvall, I mentioned earlier, who worked with uh, New York University, says, I think the means by which a police state is being set up is the demonization of supporters of former president and the likely use of medical passports to institute the effective equivalent of social credit scores. And while loyalty to the government and to a specific political party plays a major role, it's the allegiance to the ideological root of totalitarianism that gives it uh, its foot soldiers, literature on the subject indicates. 
Well, totalitarian ideology, what are we then referring to? Well, the element that holds totalitarianism together as a composite of intellectual elements is the ambition of fundamentally reimagining society. And we're hearing a lot about that these days. The intention to create a new man, explained uh, Richard Shorten, who is uh, an author, in Modernism and Totalitarianism, Rethinking the Intellectual Sources of Nazism and Stalinism, 1945 to the Present. He is its author. He points out that various ideologies have framed the ambition directly based on what they posited as the key to the transformation. Now, I find it rather interesting. The new man parallels and reflects what God calls us to to be born again. But this is something uh, quite different. Karl Marx, co-author of the Communist Manifesto, viewed the control of the economy as primary, describing socialism as socialized man. The associated producer rationally regulating their interchange with nature, bringing it under their common control instead of being ruled by it as by the blind forces of nature in his Das Kapital. Adolf Hitler, who, of course, was a leader of the National Socialist Workers Party in Nazi Germany, viewed race as primary. People would become socialized, that is, transformed and perfected by removing Jews and other supposedly lesser races from society. Now, the most dominant among the current ideologies stem from the so-called critical theories, critical race theory being one of them, where the perfected society is defined by equity, meaning elimination of differences in outcomes for people in demographic categories deemed historically marginalized. The goal is to be achieved by eliminating the ever-present white supremacy, however the ideologues currently defined it, and it is Uh, defined rather differently depending on the situation. Now, while such ideologies rather commonly prescribe collectivism, calling for national or even international unification behind their agenda, they are elitist and dictatorial in practice as they find mankind never woke enough to follow their agenda voluntarily. So leaders must emerge to dictate what that agenda will be. In Marx's uh, prophecies, the revolution was supposed to occur spontaneously, It never did, and that led Vladimir Lenin, the first head of the Soviet Union, to conclude that the revolution will need leadership after all. Well, the idea is that you have some enlightened party who understand the problems of the proletariat better than the proletariat does and is going to shepherd them through the revolution that they need to have for the greater good. James Lindsay, author of um, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholars Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and why this harms everybody points out. Well, elements of this intellectual foundation can be found in ideologies of many current political forces, from neo-Nazi, uh, anacro-communists, through to progressives, and to some extent, some neoliberals and neoconservatives, uh, Lindsay argues in his book, Cynical Theories. This is why you see so many people today saying that the only possible answers are a full return to classical liberalism or a complete rejection of liberalism entirely as uh, fatally disposed to create progressivism, neoliberalism, and etc. Well, that's not to say these ideologies are openly advocating to- totalitarianism. That rarely is the case, but rather that they inevitably lead to it. The roadmap could be summarized like this. There's something fundamentally and intolerably wrong with current reality. There is a plan to fix it requiring a whole society, a buy-in rather. 
People opposing the plan need to be educated about the plan so they accept it. People who resist the persuasion need to be re-educated even against their will. And this is the pattern that is uh, considered acceptable. Number five, people who won't accept the plan, uh, no matter uh, uh, what, uh, no matter what, rather, need to be removed from society. Again, Lindsay points out that I think that's the general thrust. We can make the world the way we want it to be if we all just get on the same page, the same project. It's a disaster, however. Points four and five, people who won't accept the plan no matter what need to be removed uh, and severely disciplined, um, uh, now appear to be in progress. And again, uh, point four being People who resist the persuasion need to be re-educated and um, even against their will or removed altogether. Now, former Facebook executive Alex Stamos, he recently labeled the widespread questioning of the 2020 election as one example, uh, results as violent extremism, questioning the uh, election's outcome, which social media companies should eradicate the same way they uh, countered online recruitment content from the ISIS terrorist group. So widespread questioning uh, of the 2020 election should be handled in the same way that terrorists were handled, uh, ISIS terrorists were handled uh, by uh, the media. Now, we're going to continue and finish with this in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're talking about totalitarianism and what's happening here in the United States. Now, it may seem to be a very strong word that uh, you may not want to embrace, but I think there's a case to be made that we are moving in that direction that could result in a very different America than we have known up to this point. The ideological alignment pushing America toward totalitarianism is what's being argued by many experts across the country, and I've um, referenced a number of them. I also mentioned the uh, the way, uh, the pattern in which this is likely taking place, the roadmap, if you will. One, the acknowledgement there's something fundamentally and intolerably wrong with the current reality. There's a plan to fix it, requiring a whole society buy-in. People opposing the plan need to be educated or re-educated about the plan so that they can accept it, but that people who resist the persuasion need to be re-educated Uh, even against their will, and if they refuse to comply, uh, to accept the plan, um, they need to be removed from society. Now, many of these scholars are arguing that steps four and five are already being uh, argued. Uh, The author of one book, Mr. Lindsay, that I mentioned earlier, suggested that that is precisely where we are. His book is Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholars Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Uh, he points out that um, the thrust uh, that we are uh, that we are generally in uh, is just that we can make the world the way we want it to be if we just get the same on the same page, the same project. It's a disaster, however, and uh, gives us one example. Former Facebook executive Alex Stamos he recently labeled the widespread questioning of the 2020 election results as violent extremism. Now this is. Questioning. This is not opposing. This isn't violent uh, protest, but questioning the outcome, which the uh, Democrats did for the entire uh, Trump administration. 
Uh, the media companies should eradicate, he suggests, the same way they countered online recruitment content from the ISIS terrorist group. The core issue, he says, is that we have given a lot of leeway, both in traditional media and on social media, to people to have a very broad range of political views. In a land of the free, he thinks giving people a broad range of political views is somehow damaging. And this has led, he goes on to say, to the emergence of more and more radical alternative media like OAN and Newsmax. So Newsmax is considered by uh, him, a competitor, by the way, uh, as um, alternative media that is more and more radical. Stamos then mused about how to reform Americans who've turned into the dissenters. Now, when has it become the role of government or the media uh, to um, reform Americans? He goes on to say, how do you bring those people back into the mainstream, assuming that he is the mainstream, of the fact-based reporting and try to get us all back into the same consensus reality, he asked in a CNN interview. He's, he's living in a fictitious world in which we all had one view. And can you? Is that possible? The host, Brian Stetler, added the CNN host. Well, the logical logic goes as follows. Trump claimed the election was stolen through fraud and other illegalities. That has not been proven in court and is thus false. People who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which was a small number of people, didn't represent the vast majority who had legitimate questions about the way some of the election was conducted and managed to break inside and disrupt the electoral vote counting, uh, did so because they believed the, the election was stolen. Therefore, anybody who questions the legitimacy of the election results is an extremist and potentially a terrorist. That's the logic on CNN, overlooking the previous four years in which every aspect of the Trump administration and his election was called into question. With tens of thousands of troops assembled to guard the inaugurations of President-elect Joe Biden, Representative Steve Cohen recently told CNN that all Guard members who voted for Trump belong to a suspect group that might want to do something, alluding to past leaders of other countries who were killed by their own people. Now, who are the extremists here? Former FBI Director James Comey recently said the Republican Party needs to be burned down or changed. They want a one-party state, commented conservative filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza in a recent podcast. That is not to say they don't want an opposition. They want a token opposition. They want Republicans where they get to say what kind of Republican is okay. Well, just as Karl Marx blamed the ills of the world world on capitalists and Hitler on the Jews, the current regime tends to blame various permutations of white supremacy. Expel the Republican members of Congress who incited the white supremacist attempted coup. That's a quote from Representative Cori Bush in a recent tweet garnering some 300,000 likes. She's referring to the Republican lawmakers who raised objections on the 6th of January election results in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Their objections were voted down. And by the way, there is a process to do that. And the Democrats have objected to elections virtually every year previous. Um, Can U.S. spy agencies stop white terror? The Daily Beast's Jeff Stein asked in a recent headline, concluding that a call for secret police to sniff out extremist Americans may well be renewed attention, may get renewed attention. So you slap white supremacists on it and whether whatever the issue is, it gives you broad authority to violate the core principles of the United States and its freedom. Under the regime, allegations of election fraud, de facto questions, the legitimacy of the leader have uh, become incite, uh, incitements of terrorism. YouTube, owned by Google, Facebook, and Twitter, have either banned content that claims the election was rigged or 
are furnishing it with warning labels. Twitter chief executive Jack Dorsey was recently recorded as saying that banning the president's account was just the beginning. The beginning of what, one might wonder. Well, the approach uh, closely mirrors that of Chinese communist regime, which commonly targets dissidents for subverting the state or spreading rumors. Now, will that become unacceptable in the United States and who determines what is subversive and what uh, spreading rumors constitutes? So what is the alternative? Where do we go from here? And is this the direction that we're headed? Well, if calls for radically reorganizing the world are inherently totalitarian, how is the world to avoid them? The question appears to be its own answer. If totalitarianism inherently requires allegiance to its ideology, it can't exist in a society with a lack of such allegiance. The question is, will those who stand to lose financially or otherwise stand against it? So far, few have. The United States was founded on the idea that individual rights are God-given and unalienable. What a foreign concept today. The idea rooted in traditional beliefs that human morality um, is of divine origin stands a bulwark against any attempt to assail people's rights even for their own good. It stands against this movement toward totalitarianism. If you're not a believer in actual God, you can posit a God's ideal on the matter. We have to posit some arbiter who's above and beyond our own prejudices and biases in order to ensure these kinds of rights. Because otherwise, you have this infinitely malleable situation in which people with power and coercive potential can eliminate and rationalize the elimination of rights willy-nilly. That's a quote from Professor Rechtenwald on this current move. We are seeing an attempt to replace God with a little g God uh, who um, can posit ideology on a matter uh, without question. And for those heretics who decline to embrace that little g God's ideology, they must be dealt with, either re-educated, uh, and in the event that they are unwilling to be re-educated, um, removed altogether. Now, this may sound rather extreme, but we're seeing examples of it already across the country, people losing their jobs Corporations and others being intimidated into taking positions contrary uh, to their own for the sake of being able to make a living. Uh, college campuses and elsewhere where speakers are simply shouted down because an alternative point of view, an opposing point of view that might challenge uh, or be compelling um, are simply not tolerated. We're seeing the ideology being imposed in a variety of ways, and it is very sobering and calls all of us to consider whether or not we have the courage to stand on our convictions moving forward. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be back for some final thoughts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, our final segment of the day. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Jen Pollock-Michelle. She's the author of A Habit Called Faith. 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. It's a great resource if you're not used to um, regular Bible reading. Maybe you're not convinced it's uh, something that you can or are willing to do. It's a great resource to challenge our thinking about God's Word, but it's also a resource to challenge those who aren't fully convinced um, about the Christian faith and uh, the work of Jesus Christ. So we'll talk with Jen Pollock-Michelle. 
Michelle about that on Thursday. And then on Friday, we're going to share with you a bit of the lighter side of the news, something I haven't done in uh, quite some time. So I hope you'll join us for that. We'll also cover the day's headlines. So uh, we'll make sure that you're up to date on that as well. Well, I confessed earlier that um, I've been a little bit... um, Nervous about today being the first time back on the radio since the 23rd of February. A lot has happened between uh, since then up until today. And I earlier thanked those who co or who rather guest hosted for me in my absence. And I cannot tell you what a relief it is when you are incapacitated to know that the program is moving forward with capable, bright, thoughtful, articulate people who are carrying uh, the program forward. None of that is possible unless you have a producer who is willing to put in the hard work to orchestrate all of that. And it's very challenging to make all of that work. Um, Again, I can't, I don't have the time and I can't really tell you without going to great detail, the work that James Blinn has done to help cover me because I, my last program here was on the 23rd of February and I had anticipated I was going to be on the air. I think there was a radiothon the next day on the 24th. That evening, um, Dan Rice found me unresponsive on my couch and I was taken by ambulance to Emanuel Hospital to the, to the neurological intensive care unit where I spent several days, was uh, taken to a general ward and spent uh, over a week there. So my expectation was that I was, you know, going to just have a regular day uh, coming up, but that wasn't the case. Um, James Blend had to, <laughs> for more than a month, um, put things together uh, so that the program could continue. So I just want to publicly thank James Blend for all of the work that uh, that he did. It was yeoman's duty, and certainly. More challenging for him. I also want to thank the guest hosts who sat in for them for me. And I know that's a challenge in and of itself to sit in someone else's chair. These are talented people, but sitting in someone else's chair where there's a set of expectations, it can be nerve wracking, but they were willing to do that. And from what I understand um, from James, part of their motivation was to minister to me and to be a blessing to me as well as to KPDQ listeners. I want to thank Mike Lee. Uh, who is willing to drop everything and host the program. Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield and her husband, uh, Dr. Ken Canfield, who uh, sat in and hosted the program. Again, great host. Sandy Snavely, who is a seasoned communicator, author. Uh, she sat in for me. And then Frank Sontag, my counterpart in Los Angeles, uh, who for the majority of the time was available to provide content. Now, his style is different. But he is a brilliant communicator. He's a man of faith and was willing to take on the extra burden of covering for KPDQ listeners so that you could stay abreast of of those events. If you have the opportunity to uh, communicate with any of these guest hosts, Mike Lee, who works at KPDQ, Dr. Uh, Michelle, I should say Drs. Michelle Watson and uh, Canfield and Dr. Ken Canfield, Sandy Snavely or Frank Sontag. Drop them an email and just say thank you um, for their willingness to to serve and minister on KPDQ. So I do want to say thank you uh, for them. I also want to mention that it was on February 23rd, I believe that evening, that things just spun out of control. Uh, I was unaware for a period of days what was going on. I didn't know where I was or what was happening. It was, I believe, on the fourth day that I regained consciousness and learned what it had happened. Um, this has been a very, very difficult and challenging recovery. 
Uh, I am told that it will take several months before I am fully recovered, but I have made sufficient progress that I'm able to sit at my desk at home and uh, um, come back to uh, to working. But there are still some challenges. I am so grateful to the Lord that he was with me throughout, uh, that he taught me throughout, that I have witnessed his faithfulness. I have witnessed his care and provision for me. He revealed things about his character that has deepened my trust and love for him. And he's also revealed things about my character that I need to surrender. And I am grateful uh, that he is faithful to do just that. You know, no suffering takes place outside of God's sovereign rule. And he always, for those who are his own, he always orchestrates that suffering for our good and his glory. And these difficult times create deeper dependence and intimacy with God. Uh, and suffering allows him um, to do more with, in, and through us and to use us uh, in ministering to others in ways nothing else can. And it never diminishes his love for us. It's never just something to be endured when you're a follower of Jesus. It's an opportunity to seek more passionately uh, the Lord of glory, to know him more deeply. And it grows us as we lean into him and trust him for needed strength. When times are hard, suffering can increase our spiritual sensitivity. It can tenderize our hearts toward God. In fact, during the times when it, I was struggling the most, it was when I had been told that Luis Palau was in hospice. And I decided I wasn't going to focus my attention on how I'm feeling and my suffering. But the Lord really turned my attention to others that I knew to be suffering. I began to pray fervently for Luis Palau. I continued and uh, was praying for a dear friend who had heart surgery recently, Samuel Hakim and his family. I was praying for others that I knew were struggling. And what a delight it was to turn my attention away from my physical suffering and challenge to those who were also suffering and somehow not feel diminished because I was trusting God to handle what was going uh, going on with me. Suffering removes that pretense that we have things figured out or that we have control of things that we cannot. I thought February 23rd that night I'd make dinner and the next day was the uh, radiothon. There are things that we cannot control. And suffering strips away dependence on people or things that cannot satisfy our deepest longing. So I am grateful to the Lord. While the things that I have faced and am facing, I wouldn't have chosen for myself, but my life is surrendered to the Lord, and I trust him and his sovereignty to allow what is in my best interest and for his glory. And the outcome, whether it's full recovery, as I've been given to expect, or prolonged suffering, I can trust him that he is at work with purpose, and I can de depend on him. Um, there is a faithful, never-changing God who is in control, and I have rested in his faithfulness. And for those of you who are struggling in various ways, maybe it involves physical suffering, emotional suffering or strain, rest in his faithfulness. And I want to repeat what I said in the first segment of today's program. Every day begins and ends with his purpose. There isn't a, a delight that escapes his eye. Uh, or a detail that escapes his eye, a trial that doesn't touch his heart, or a single experience beyond, beyond his compassion. Every moment of our lives is in his care, and he gives overwhelming peace and hope. I say that because I've experienced it. I am experiencing it. That is my testimony today. 
And as I struggle in the days ahead for full recovery, I am trusting God for whatever outcome he chooses. And I want to encourage you to do the same. I want to thank many of you for praying for me. You just have no idea how much that meant to hear that. You know, I got a note that someone from KPDQ is praying that Southwest Bible. I, Pastor Scott from the pulpit mentioned that I was struggling and the congregation prayed for me. A women's quilting group made a quilt for me. And those those things that bring us together as the family of God have been such a blessing. Now, there's no crying in radio, so this is the end of it, and this is the end of the program. But I just want to say thank you, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow for The Georgine Rice Show. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.